Happy New Year. I was hoping that you were going <laughs> to wish me and Happy read New your Year. mind. I know how much, as everyone heard on the previous podcast, how much, Kate, you love saying Happy New Year all month long. All month long. I feel like January 31st is a really big day for you because you just need to go out and be around as many people as possible because it's your last day to say happy new year. I don't know that I would go that far. I I will say I'm going to be celebrating January 31st more than normal because I am doing dry January. (sighs) So that's, I mean, obviously, maybe not obviously, no alcohol. No alcohol. alcohol. It's also no, for me, I add things, no french fries and no desserts no refined sugar so you're like 11 days into that how are you feeling well I start on January 2nd because starting <laughs> on January 1st is terrible that was actually gonna be my next question is that midnight yeah. you take your last sip of no. champagne at 1159 and then midnight it's also done. as my husband likes to say January 1st is national hangover day and so the idea of like feeling like crap and not being able to have like french fries or even sometimes the hair of the dog like yep we have a tradition of going to the movies and sneaking in little bourbons and hanging out. And oh, I think that's lovely. Uh, so, yes, January 2nd to January 31st. Okay. I'm I feel like right. you should do like through February right. 1st. Look, Just I, need it, I need it to dry out. So, it's so far, I'm fine. Let's see what happens on, on January 31st. But speaking of the Happy New Year, I did not ask you last week. You may have been a little offended. What your TV resolutions are. Well, get ready. No, just kidding. It's not like that you big had deal. A whole week to come up with them. If you I mean, I obviously knew it before oh, I even asked great. you what yours was. Um, mine is to pick a small handful of shows this year and to keep up with them. <laughs> And to be part of the conversation. And you know what? I may even pick one. I don't know which one it's going to be. And the weekend it drops. If the whole season drops, watch the whole thing in a weekend. Not all at once. Not, like, not you know, over the drops, three days. But over the three days. And be like, I don't know, something big that's dropping that everyone's talking about or getting excited about. Maybe it's a new season of something. And uh, I'm going to commit that weekend to watching the whole thing so I can talk about it this with everyone. This is the equivalent of people's commitment to working out. Like, it's the thing of like, oh, this is hard for me to do. Like, I like it. I like how I feel. But it's like a little bit of a mountain to climb in the way that people are like in January, they have fitness goals and yep. food goals and whatever. And so, you know, mine is, you. I know, especially our are members. Are you picking me? Do you already know? What I they don't are? know what they are okay. yet, but most people that know me well know I watch a little bit of everything. Mm. I've seen an episode of almost everything. <laughs> um, and I eventually finish them all. It's just usually three years after everyone else does. Yeah. So there are some that I think, I'll just naturally fall into like yellow jackets. Sure. You know, that's one that I'm already hard. That's like people going like, oh, I'm working out. Oh, I'm going for walks with my friends all the time, which is still working out. And I'm not downplaying it, but that's. Yeah, because that's like, I mean, and I've already watched season one, so I'm already prepared to jump in. So there's things like that. I'm trying to think if there's any other season two, especially that I know that's coming out that I'm. Well. It's not a season two, but I'm going to add one to your list, and it's going to connect to today's release. Okay, I'm ready for it. I wasn't prepared for this, but so look at you flying with it. Is Leslie Linka Glatter's Love and Death on HBO Max? Yes, you are correct. Um, 
is coming out soon. I don't think we have the release date. I couldn't find it. If it is out there, I could not find it. But I know they've been teasing it, and it's part of, like, HBO Max's, like, coming this year trailers, and I believe it will come out before June. Um, But it's how we met her, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's filmed in Austin. Yep. Which you're pretty excited about. It's based on a Texas Monthly article, who which we also love. We love deeply. It's starring Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons and Patrick Fugit. And it's going to be, I don't know if it's a bin. I don't know how they're releasing it. I don't know if you binge or if it's week to week. Oh, I got to be prepared. I got to be prepared that if it does come out all at once that I set aside that weekend. Good for you. It's a limited series. I know. See, so that's also really time. helpful. Yeah. Yep. So I'm very excited about this and we'll keep you updated as I pick each show. It might be like a show at a time, like yeah. whatever show, like if it's love and death, it's like, this is the one I'm keeping up with. And then when it ends, then I'll pick a next one. That sounds more realistic for you. Oh, absolutely. But speaking of, um, the conversation we're releasing today is our achievement in television excellence award to Leslie Linka Glatter presented by Texas monthly, which I was very excited. About. Our friends. Um, they only, they are our friends, but rightfully so they only kind of work with us when it really makes sense for Texas people. <laughs> so that is not a dig that sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. And this year having it be Leslie who just, I believe show ran as well as directed and produced love and death for them. I know she show ran. I don't believe it. I know it. Um, for an article they produced and then Tommy Schlamy. Thomas Schlamy, uh, who is also a Texan and on our advisory board. And they are both DGA presidents. All of these things coming together for this beautiful director's conversation. Can I give one spoiler of the conversation of the thing that I found the most fascinating is Leslie is Texan Mm -hmm. in her blood. That's not the fact. The Mm -hmm. fact is this was her first time filming in Texas. I did not right? gauge that. But yeah, I think you are right. I think yes. I'm right too. I mean, I learned a lot of things that I won't spoil in this conversation. It is a very good conversation about like where she started, what her upbringing was. Obviously, her and Tommy are peers. So they were able to have kind of like deeper conversations. Also, something you won't know in this conversation, which it has been released as video if you want to watch that as well. Um, but is the audience like the audience of this conversation were like the power players mm-hmm. of like Graham Yost was in there and like just bunch of directors and writers, all of the justified writers were in there. Um, so it's just a very, it was just a very cool audience listening and participating. Um, I do also want to say Leslie is confirmed for season 12. Yeah, she is. Because we fell in love with her and as many, we tried to get her for like 10 years and now she's come and luckily, I think she fell in love with us a little bit and wants to come back. So we are doing a Homelands Creatives conversation that she is kind of spearheading. We're hoping to do a few more things. But I still just think it's so cool she's the president of the DGA. Because she's a badass. Yeah, she is. So, I mean, I don't have anything else to say about it. <laughs> I feel like, guys. We listen. can let her talk about yes. it. Talk about how amazing she is, which it's not how she speaks about herself. No, she but doesn't. Just hearing her, you're like, you can't help but be in awe. Yes. So with that, please enjoy uh, a conversation with ATX awardee Leslie Lincoln Gladder, moderated by Thomas Schlamy. 
Hi, Leslie. Hi, Tommy. First of all, just to be perfectly uh, upfront with everybody, we are very close friends. Yes. We've known each other for many years. I'm going to ask questions that I already know the answers to, but I want you guys to know the answers to, and I want you just to take a moment, because there was a little back and forth between you guys, to really acknowledge what you just got, because the truth of it is, all of us who toil in television sort of know how difficult it is, and you have done such an extraordinary job, and you have, are so incredibly talented, and you are, for many people, you know, truly a, you know, an inspiration of how you got to where you got. Uh, so I just want you to acknowledge that, and, and maybe part of the rule is, yeah. You are also... Thank you for that, and I know wait, there's no crime you, in before, baseball. But, but, but before you do anything else, because there's also one other rule, no deflection. You just take it. You just take it and don't go, yeah, but if it wasn't for so-and-so, I would... No, you just take it, okay? So, he knows me too well, see? Uh, uh, so, I just wanted to start, because we'll start with the origin story, you uh, know? And I think we kind of started around the same time. You were doing amazing stories, I was doing after-school specials, but I won't hold that against you. Uh, but we did do it at a similar time, yeah. and the truth of it is, when I started in this business, uh, everybody looked like me. Uh, truthfully, uh, with the baseball cap, dinner's here, he was there. He's got a baseball cap on, too. Thank you. Uh, Thank yeah. you, Michael. Uh, we get the baseball cap. Uh, and, but it wasn't just directors looked like me. It was executives looked like me. Uh, writers looked like me. The crews looked like me. Everybody looked like me. I mean, They're so they, they handsome. Were, yeah, they were. I was just going to say they were a lot better looking than me. But they did. Uh, they were white men for the most part. Um, and you weren't. Uh, and you not only succeeded, you did extraordinary work, constantly did extraordinary work, kept working with the same people, kept, you know, so the real question I have is who the fuck were your parents? Uh, to how are you were parented to get to a place, and since, and we'll talk about your movie now and then, but in that movie, there's this, you know, beautiful sort of structure of this moment with these, you know, uh, women who think back on their childhood. I want to go back to 10-year-old Leslie. Ten-year-old Leslie in Dallas, Texas, by the way, um, yeah. and hundreds of miles from me in Houston, Texas. Yes. Um, so, but, you know, who that person was and who the parents were and what your hopes and dreams were. It was also probably when you were 10, there was also a pretty big event in Dallas, Texas. Yes. At that moment, there was an assassination. Uh, so, just go back. Wow. Ten years old. Uh, hmm. Uh, and by the way, for everybody, we're not going to do 11 next. Thanks. And yes, please. No, 11 was really hard. So, you know, growing up is hard, no matter where you are. But um, I had amazing parents. My mom uh, trained with Martha Graham and Hanya Holm and Alan Nikolai. She moved to Dallas with my labor-organizing father, who was with the International Ladies' Garment Union. So they, from New York, moved to Dallas, Texas. I was born there. Uh, so we were a little bit aliens, and I love Texas. So, but definitely we were a bit on the alien side there. I had to walk through a, a, a sea of JFK signs on the front lawn, which was not popular at the time. Uh, and, and yet Texas, I think, gave me the ability to dream big 
And I had parents that, especially a mom who was a working mom, who said, you can do anything, but you have to work really hard at it. And that really went into my psyche, is about possibility, but it's not a free lunch. You have to really work at it. And, and did she preface that with, you have to work extra hard at it because you were a woman, or was that not that even? That was not it at all. Right. And my, you know, I was a modern dancer for many years and a choreographer before I started directing. And I mentioned this in the last panel, coming from modern dance, you can't cheat. You know, your leg goes up in the air or it doesn't go up in the air. It doesn't matter what I say to you about how great I am. You're gonna know immediately I'm full of shit. So that it's an amazing background to come from in terms of that, like you really learn how to learn. So I danced for years and dance was kind of like, you know, my escape from reality. And at, at 10, was that a dream to be a dancer? That, I mean, well, you, actually, you were watching, your, your mom 10, had a dance studio, right? My mom had a dance studio, and there was a whole story about that, too, but... Um, well, this is the time to tell it. Okay, that's the time to tell it. Uh, I wanted to be an astronaut and a cowboy. So that's kind of where I was at. Uh, maybe Those a are fairly gender-specific at yes, that time. Yes, and then it transformed that I thought I would be a dancing neurosurgeon which is what I went to college for. I thought I'd operate on brains by day and do concert modern oh, dance. Oh, thank God you thought of them as separate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or people would be all screwed up. Um, so my mom had a dance studio in Dallas. And at a certain point, I was probably about eight years old, uh, where she got a call from the black YMCA that they had these great dancers. And did she know where they could train? Because they'd gone as far as they could at the, at the Y, and she said, well, come on over, come to my studio. And it opened up a huge thing, because she integrated her dance studio before that was, you know, not the law, it was the law of the land, you know, and it shouldn't have been a big deal, but it was. So that, I saw my mother, uh, who was not terribly political, even though my father was, stand up and take a stand for something she believed in. And I think that made a big impact on me as a child. So and she was a brave woman. And was she the role model? Yes, I would say yes, she was. And yeah. did you pursue dance because of her? Did you, I mean, not consciously, but I, I subconsciously think, that, yes. my gosh, my mother does this. She's kind of an amazing woman. I should try to. I, I did, I mean, I got it in my teenage years when you're, one is rebelling. I did decide, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. But then I came back. Oh. Most people's rebellion isn't quite that high. You know, I'm going to live on the streets for a few years, and I'm going to smoke a lot of dope or something. Yeah, that too. But, but no, I you were a neurosurgeon. A neurosurgeon. How disappointing to your parents. I started uh, traveling. I, I was always curious about everything that was out there because I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna find the secrets to the universe on top of a mountain in Kathmandu. You know, it was always out there. So I was overseas for 10 years. I was in Paris, London, and based out of Tokyo. And yes, I speak Japanese. You know. We so, can do the rest of the interview, so do I. Oh, so yo, Nihongo I had no fucking idea what you said. <laughs> I was acting. You were, it was excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Print. Uh, um, uh, so, so I traveled a, it's, a lot. It's an interesting thing, but you know, and this again is not about Texas, not about, 
I didn't know where I wanted to go. I knew where I didn't want to stay. Yes. And it had nothing to do with Houston. It just, I just knew there was a bigger world out there. And that was from 10 on. I yeah. mean, I sort of knew that. So that was something you felt. I, well, but also we traveled a lot. My mom would go choreograph for the Irish National Ballet or the Swiss National Ballet, or we'd be in New York for a semester. So I did have a lot of input and I was, I couldn't wait to be out there exploring. So I went to Europe on my own for the first time and I met various family friends there when I was like 14. And I was your- Roy Rogers roast beef illegally, <laughs> underage, and uh, you carded it. Roy Rogers roast beef. It was a carded. They hired me. Oh, oh, hired. <laughs> I thought As a cashier. I went to Roy Rogers roast beef. No, yeah. I would never admit to that. Uh, no, I had a cowboy hat that was so big on my face it like came down <laughs> to here because I was like 13 years old. And so, was your father present a lot, or was he traveling? My parents and... divorced, which was a big deal at that. At point, what age? At 12, which is a horrible time. You know, you're trying to figure out who you are on the planet. And was it a surprise? Not really. I think kids know. And it was. And you're great. an only child. I'm right? an only. I'm an only. And so it was a big deal. And of course, I wanted them back together, even though they were not good together. But. And you stayed with your mom. I stayed with my mom, but I saw my dad a lot. So that answers the first question, which is, how the hell did you barrel through this? You had a mother. Who... I was my father's son. Oh. Well, you were your father's son, and you saw a mother who was who, enormously yes. productive and nothing was stopping her. And yes. in fact, stood in the way of things that tried to stop her. That's, that's absolutely true. And uh, it's interesting when you were, as an adult human now, kind of adult, you look back and my mother was the risk taker. You know, she was the one that took every challenge. Uh, and my dad died full of regrets for what he could have done or should have done or had to have done and didn't do. So that was a huge lesson for me. It's so you were, better were you aware try of that and as a fail child? than not try. Were you aware of that as a child? I think I knew, but I didn't know in the way one can look back. Uh, so, you're not 10 anymore. No, You're thank starting God. your profession. Yeah. And you're a choreographer and a dancer? I was a dancer first. I, uh, and who did you dance for? And what I time? started doing my own work. I always wanted to do my own work. But in New York, I worked with Sally Bowden from Merce Cunningham. Uh, I was at the London School of Contemporary Dance in, in London, but worked with a, a British dance company, as well as uh, I lived in France and was with a French theater and dance company for and three years. That, those th are you 20, 21, is that? I, was, uh, I graduated really young. I graduated 19. Not in pre-med, yeah. Uh, after a year of pre-med, I had a scholarship to Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, I realized, nah, I want to dance. So I placed out of a couple of years, and then I took off for New York, and then ultimately Europe. But at that point, your focus was, I'm going to be a I'm going to dance, yeah. <clears throat> so how did you start to... How did I start to wrecking? But, but, I mean, that segue... Yeah. I mean, I know the story, and yes. I certainly know the story, but, I, but it's a worthwhile story, so. Okay, this is what's so amazing about directing or writing or producing is nobody has the same path. Everyone, like you'd say, people ask, how did you get started? Like, no one will have the same path. Anyone you talk to who's doing what we do has a different story. 
So I was living in Tokyo at the time. I was sent there to teach, choreograph, and perform throughout the Far East. This was back in the dark ages when the American government actually thought cultural exchange was a good thing. Okay. So I'm there, uh, and I am in Shibuya. If you've been to Tokyo, it's a very busy part of town. And I wanted a cup of coffee. And there were two coffee shops, one on the right, one on the left. Arbitrarily, I picked the one on the right. And I go inside, it's packed, uh, and there's one seat left with an older Japanese man. So I'm like 25, he's in his 70s. Now I think he's young, uh, but at the time I thought he was old. Uh, and he, he kind of waves me over and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. I sit down with him. He ends up speaking 12 languages fluently, perfect King's English. He had been the top foreign war correspondent in the country. He uh, had been a Buddhist monk. And uh, at the time, he was head of cultural affairs for the Asahi Shimbun, which is the largest newspaper. So this is by chance. And the first thing he says to me when I sit down, which became the name of my first film, uh, is meeting is the beginning of parting. And I said, that is so sad. And he says, when you know something, when you know this is not sad, you will know something very great. And that was the beginning of my relationship with this man who became like my mentor. His wife became like my surrogate mother in Japan. And many years, or like three years into knowing him, he told me a series of stories that happened to him, all during different wars, uh, all on Christmas Eve, even though he was Buddhist, and all about human connection. And when he told me the stories, I knew I had to pass it on, and I knew it wasn't dance. So if I had gone in the coffee shop on the left, I would have never directed. But a good barista, maybe. I maybe mean, I would be a barista, barista now, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah. But in those three years, you're still choreographing. Are you thinking there's something else, much like when you were in Dallas, there's something else out there? You were going to be a choreographer. I, I, was, I was doing solo concerts. I was... Uh, choreographing. I was working with amazing Japanese artists. I would go, uh, you know, to the Balinese Dance Academy, and I would teach modern dance, and I would study Balinese dance. I was going all over the Far East. And what were your relationship with television and movies at this point in your life? I mean, I watched a lot of foreign films. Like, I was very affected by Japanese films, by Mishima, by Kurosawa, Oshima. So I watched much more. I didn't grow up with TV. In fact, my first experience with TV, I, I was around three, and I thought all those people in the TV were living in the TV. And I, if I broke the tube, they would come out and play with me. And you told the writers of Toy Story that. And, uh, <laughs> no, so anyway, that's what I thought about TV. So you guys didn't, you didn't watch TV growing up? Not you didn't really, no. even go to the movie theater? I went to the movie, th we went to the movies a lot, but I didn't really watch TV. So, we discussed current events at the dinner table <laughs> and politics. Yeah. So what made you think, first of all, why couldn't it have been a dance? I mean, you were telling stories in your dance. You must, yes. you're a consummate storyteller. So dance must, I mean, I will just tell you very honestly, yeah. dance goes right over my head. You know, <laughs> you know, I love it and I think there's some, but I'm not always aware of the story. I'm aware of the movement. Yes. And it's a little bit, for me, like seeing a movie that's filled with style and not with substance. Yes. Uh, I know that's not true. I no. know, I, I remember seeing Pina Bausch and, and, her, and, Bausch. and I went, oh, there's a whole other thing oh, yes. that happens emotionally. Uh, but were you telling stories when you were dancing? 
Uh, yes, yes, I was, but not in the same way. And where I knew it was a narrative story, I felt like it was not the, about only subtext. It was about the text as well. It needed to be the story. So I had directed theater, so I thought, well, maybe it's a play. And then by chance, sounds like I do a lot of things by chance. Maybe, yeah, it's being open to the opportunities, maybe something about that. Uh, I met a, my first film director that I ever met, and who had been a former- In Japan? In Japan. Because, you know, when you were a Westerner living in Japan back then, everyone on the planet coming through Tokyo would get your name and call. So I got the weirdest calls from people, like, oh, hi, this is Joey, I'm a friend of Alice, who's a friend of Vicky, you know. Want to get together? Yeah, so, um, so I met the first film director I ever met, which was George Miller from Road Warrior, George Miller, not Snowy River. And he was a doctor. He had been a doctor before he had been a director. Right. And Mad Max, he had just directed Mad Max. It had been released in Australia, and Japan was the first place it was being released uh, overseas. And it was a huge hit in Australia. So eventually I told him these stories, and he said, that's a film. How did it become a film? How did it become a film? Um, uh, uh, you I, know nothing about filmmaking. I know nothing about filmmaking. I know nothing about filmmaking. Of course, I, I'm, I'm talking in the past. No, I, do, I, I knew know nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing about it at all. And um, I, uh, I finally moved back to America after 10 years overseas because once you realize the answers to the universe are not on a mountain in Kathmandu, that it's probably looking inside here, I realized I needed to come back to America. So I did. But and coming back to America as a choreographer, as I a was dancer. Still, yes, as a dancer and choreographer. So I was married was a couple of marriages ago. That sounds bad, right? Yeah. Uh, it was my best ex-husband. I was married to my best ex-husband. And he was coming to Los Angeles to work. I had never been to Los Angeles. So I assumed I would, ha as a dancer, had to go to, back to New York and that we would be bi-coastal. Um, but I was like, I had to do a piece. I was like, there was so much that was brewing from living in Japan for the five years I was there that I did a dance piece that got a lot of attention. And so I ended up uh, getting hired at California Institute of the Arts on the dance faculty. And it was a great platform to be able to choreograph. I was going around the country. And then I met someone who told me about the directing workshop for women at the American Film Institute, which I was totally unqualified for. Completely. It was set up for women in the film business who hadn't directed. But by somebody telling you that, you must have already been talking about the idea of, I know you yes. wanted to make this short film, but beyond just making a short no one goes, I just want to make a short film and then go back to choreography and dancing. I thought at the time. Really? Yeah, because I loved what I was doing. I didn't know if I would love being a filmmaker. I just knew I needed to tell these stories. And, and, and I was told when I got, I got into AFI, shockingly, they, that year, that one year, they lit in a theater director, Jan Eliasberg, and myself as a choreographer, because it was set up for women in the film business who hadn't directed. So I shouldn't have even applied, but I did. Who else? Do you remember who else? Um, yes, I do remember. There, but not people are working. There were right. more people, like the year before was Randa Haynes. You know why? I, Your mother wasn't a choreographer. Yes, so telling you could do whatever you want if you work really hard. Yeah. Uh, no, but I think it was just harder, too. Like, oh, you know, definitely. for 
like if you didn't have that amount of tenacity, see the thing about tenacity, you have to have a huge amount whether you're male or female, but you can't forget the joy. You can't forget why you wanted to tell stories in the struggle to be doing what you want to do. And that's a tricky balance. But I get in this program and I had a panic attack because it, did anyone ever see the Chris Guest movie, The Big Picture? You know that movie? Yeah. Does anyone know that? It's about a film school like AFI. And of course, you see the finished films from the, the, the course, and they're like, Napoleon is charging in his horses. Of course, it's made for $500, but if the, the filmmaker is the son of the studio executive. I mean, everything that I was not. So I'm looking at these films going, what? And then I'm looking at credits. What is a best boy? You know, what is a dolly grip? I realized I knew nothing. And as a good dancer, I ended up working, even though I had a full-time job, I ended up working on 10 of the other women's films, doing any job I could do before I directed my own film, which I was told not to do if I ever wanted a job in Hollywood. Because the film was three quarters in Japanese, it had flashbacks, narration, it was a period piece set in World War II, and it had one Caucasian character. So they told me not to make this, but I, I didn't care. I wasn't planning a career change. I just wanted to tell that story. And so, but during this time while you're at AFI, you're still not thinking about being a filmmaker. You're I'm just thinking, I want to tell my mentor's story. Yes. And that's the reason. Yes. But you make the film. I make the film, and the, the, from the first day, I'm like, oh my goodness, I think this is my next chapter. Like, I knew, you know. But I prepped like a crazy human, like a dancer preps, you know. So during I, prep and everything, it, it didn't feel, not until you were on process. a set. It wasn't until I was actually doing it, but I storyboarded that film probably 10 times. Like, I needed to see it in my head to feel like I understood the story. And, and it did help me understand the story. And was that the discipline of a choreographer? I still do that now, even after all these years. Storyboard every scene 10 I don't, times? No, 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 I oh don't storyboard. God. Yeah, I'm exhausted. No, but I, I, I prepare incredibly so that I can feel free in the moment. And let's talk about that, because I know there were also other very influential early in your career, which actually defines those two things it you just does. said. It does, it uh, does. So, do the short, get nominated for an Academy Award, of course. Who doesn't when they do their one short and don't care about being a filmmaker and is still gonna go back to dance? But that's the journey. Keep your day job, I guess. But, uh, and then Spielberg thesis, yes. right? So, I'm living in my funky little apartment in the Fairfax district uh, with a couple of roommates, and I get a call and somebody on the line says, it's Steven Spielberg. And I'm like, yes, exactly, of course it's Steven Spielberg. And I hang up, thinking it's one of my friends. Fortunately, he called back, and it was Steven Spielberg. And by the way, I've heard that story about five or six times from other people. Yes. So Steven just must assume people are first gonna hang up on me, <laughs> and then I'll have to call them back because they don't believe it. Yeah, exactly. But seriously, other people have said, I, Aaron, yeah. Aaron Sorkin once said, yeah, I hung up. Hey, Steven Spielberg's yeah. not calling me. Yeah, that's me. right. It's oh. somebody playing a prank. You know, oh, he's used to it. He, he must be. So he just knows there's a second call in there. 
which now Stephen has been like my mentor for years, and now we serve on a lot of committees and things together. And every time I see him on a Zoom or whatever, he's like, "My protege, I'm going to be like 120 with a wheelchair and an oxygen tank, and it's still going to be my protege." It's the most wonderful, pretty thing. wonderful. Oh, protege, so grateful. Yeah. Um, so he called me up, or the second time, and I believed him. And he was doing a series, an uh, anthology series called Amazing Stories. And he asked if I would come do one. And I was like, you know, holding the phone away, what? And uh, so I came in for a meeting with him. And uh, he was asking all his amazing filmmaker friends to do them, like Martin Scorsese and Clint Eastwood. And he decided to have three new filmmakers you know, give them a chance. So there were three of us, Todd Holland, uh, uh -huh. Phil Joanneau, and myself. And the first thing I asked him after, you know, I'm like, yes, yes. And that Amazing Stories was my film school. I asked him, could I shadow with him? Because I had only been on, you know, I had directed one thing. So I, uh, I shadowed him on his episode of Amazing Stories, and he was doing Color Purple, so I went on that set, and then I shadowed Clint Eastwood. Can you imagine two incredibly different directors? But what was amazing about that was you gotta find your own way. There's no one right way. These two people are brilliant at what they do, and they couldn't be more different. Um, but there was, I think, the story you're talking about. So I, I was in one of those little carts on the Universal lot, and I was about to start shooting. And I was panicked, and I still panic before everything. It's like, oh my God, because you're always putting yourself on the line, no matter how many times. Do you feel that too? Oh, absolutely. Total panic mode. Yeah, with people that I've worked with for five years. Totally. They're gonna find me out They're tomorrow. gonna find me out that I have no idea what I'm doing, and yeah, it's been luck for the last 30 years, but now they're gonna find out. So, uh, and I worry if I, now I worry if I don't feel that. Like, you can't be complacent, you know. Uh, so we're in one of those carts, and here I tell the one person who has faith in me completely, and I tell him about this stress dream I have. And it's like an actor being naked on stage. I dream that I go to the set, and it's a crew I've never seen. On a set, I have no idea what the set it is, filled with pea green sofas. Uh, nothing, I was doing a war story with 300 guys storming a beach in World War II. That was my first day of shooting on a <laughs> professional set. I think Stephen did that to me to see if I would survive. Um, and I, you know, I, in this dream, it was horrifying. And I wake up and I tell Stephen. And Stephen, the kind human that he is, leaned in and said, I have that dream before I start anything. Yeah. And then he also told me, when you're watching a scene and it's not working, you know, and your instincts go off in the back of your head and say, this isn't working. Do not tell your instincts to shut up, or they will, and they won't talk to you anymore about that scene. It could be a lot of reasons it's not working. The blocking isn't working, there's something in the dark. It could be anything, and you better figure it out because you want that channel to your instincts open at all times. What great advice. Yeah, but uh, what I was actually referencing is the idea that you had Stephen, yes. who was incredibly prepared and very clear and Films clearly show that. Yes. As masterful as anyone who's ever done the job. And then you go from that to Twin Peaks. 
Yes. Which is, if the beer head is on the table instead of on the wall, keep it on the table. It yes. looks interesting. Yeah. But it is so uh, spontaneous and open and available to the magic of the moment. Those are very different, uh, you know, being very open and being very prepared. And you seem to have both those in your career. I mean, I've worked with I've seen that. I've seen I've you. learned everything about being a producing no director. No deflection. I'm deflecting uh, from this man here about how to do that job well. Uh, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, that job. But, um, but the idea of um, having watched you prep in a way that drove me nuts. Uh, it did. And, but in a, in a great way. And it goes back to genders. Uh, honestly, I had not worked with a director who had asked me more questions than you. But, and, and at first I was like, didn't we already talk about that? I remember talking to Julie, who runs my company, who's here, uh, going, uh, didn't Leslie already ask me about that? She's asking me again about that. And then I realized, you're just absorbing everything, and you're not frightened to ask a question. Where I've lived in a life of, I didn't ask my dad any questions, I didn't ask, you know, so it was like, oh, actually, can I ask for help here? And, I, and so I actually learned, oh, that's a great way to prep. Ask questions, ask more questions rather than say what you need. Uh, but, you know, in the process, I then saw you on the set and I saw you be able to be incredibly flexible with actors or, you know, and that was a group of actors that needed to be flexible at times with. Uh, so just talk about that and, and th those experiences as a young person, you know, it's obviously in your nature. I've seen you as a leader also in other areas be that, but the idea that your preparation doesn't overwhelm spontaneity, uh, and it's really easy for that to happen, yes. uh, especially when there's a gun to your head and time is ticking. That's, that's a great question, and I think something that directors try to balance all the time. Uh, and, you know, what I said before about seeing Spielberg and Eastwood, they couldn't direct more differently, and it works great for them. So for me, I am a preparer. I still prepare incredibly. I still ask tons of questions. But the story that Tommy's referring to with David Lynch, so, you know, Twin Peaks was a unique experience. Uh, and um, it, the scripts were like 35 pages long. So it was all about the visuals. It was visual storytelling, but deep character. And I go on David's directing and uh, Oh, no, no, no. Actually, I watched the second episode of Twin Peaks, and there's an amazing scene where a moose head is lying on the table. You know, and Kyle MacLachlan and Michael Onkeen are having a scene, and no one ever talks about the moose head. It's just sitting there. You know, and the scene's incredible because of it. And I'm like, whoa. So I asked David, how did you get the idea to put the moose head there? Where did that come from? And he said, it was there. I went, what do you mean it was there? the set decorator was going to hang the moose head on the wall, and he saw it lying there and said, leave the moose head. So after coming from a world of total prep, which, you know, and, and David does too, but in a different way, I was like, oh my God, be sure with all the, the decisions you make ahead of time and all the preparation, you're open to the moose head on the table. You're open to the opportunities that life presents you. So there was something about those two experiences of preparation and freedom that totally made sense to me. So the prep for me allows me to be free on the set and to be open to 
all opportunities, whether it comes from the actors, whether it comes from the key grip, which I now know what that means, uh, or wherever it comes from. You know, I, I'm able to take it in and make a decision about it. So to me, the preparation gives me freedom. That always happen, or do you have to catch yourself to realize I've got to keep myself open? the possibilities because I realize I only have three more hours in the day. I have a really great game plan. It's going to really be in my way if somebody's coming with, what about the, you know, um, and to sort of go through that exercise and that dance, which can lead to, I mean, I, I did an interview with Barry Jenkins yes. about uh, uh, the Underground Railroad. Yeah. And I, it, that film feels, I mean, that enormous 12-hour film. Yeah. Um, felt so designed, yes. so precise, so, and it's not at all. I mean, he was open to everything. And it was amazing to me. And I really felt he was actually to be. Let's just be present yes. right now and see what happened. And I know for me, I have to, I have to do a lot of mental exercise not to get the clock that's ticking in my brain and the idea that I had. I know in prep it will work. Right. Uh, and is there anything you have to do or does that just come natural? No, I mean, sometimes I get in a total panic. Like, I, I will never forget, uh, that I think, my second amazing story. So the first one went really well. Uh, and I got, I ended up doing three. But the second one, I had, like, a day from hell. And I had, like, nine location moves and all these scenes. And I literally was in panic mode from the beginning. And now I know how to get myself out of that. How do like, you do that? Well, I meditate. I've been meditating since I lived in Japan. But I will walk away. Like, when I was a young director, I didn't feel like I could, even to take five minutes to get back inside my body again. Uh, but now I'll go, I will be right back. You know, or I don't feel like I have to answer a question immediately. I will give you that answer in five minutes, like if I don't know it. And now I try to see, you know, I used to worry equally about everything. Is it going to rain tomorrow? Well, I can worry all I want, and it's not going to affect the rain. So I better think of what is the opportunity in this? What can I do, given that I can't control that? So I try to worry about the things I can control. But do, does the panic and all of that? Absolutely. I try to, again, I try to be open and, and stay focused on story. Story is everything. If I go back to story, I know I'll be safe. Once I'm into the story, uh, that, like, usually day three in prep, that's like, you know, the first two days, I can't do this, I don't know what I'm doing. Then by day three, I feel like I'm inside of the story, and then it starts to make sense. And does the story ever evolve while you're on the set? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, so that, you yes. can be open to that possibly, because I have that, yes. and then I'll go, oh, wait a second, actually what I thought this scene was about, until something I hear else. the actors, until I, it's about something else. Yes. Um, but I, I, I think because I was a dancer, I do walk in the shoes of the actors. I try to, like, I'm not someone, I am, like, Alex Graves, a wonderful director who you worked with, you know, dear, a good friend. He could sit in a room with a floor plan and come up with everything he's going to do. That is not my process. I think because I was a dancer, I need to go walk it physically. You know, I think the actor might do this. I think they might want that. This is the space. This is the room. I, I'm much more physical in that way. Well, part of it for Alex is he saw another film. 
that had that exact same room, and because he has such a film reference, oh my God, it's everything it's was unbelievable. This was from a shot in a yes. 1922 film. Yes, exactly. Um, but but he did it from this side of the room rather than over there. Right. Yeah. Um, so you now are starting to go from show to show. I mean, that, let's just jump a little bit. And yeah. you're, you're going to show to show. Are you as a are you aware at that time that you are one of the few women on the set? I. You know, this is interesting because it, I came from a very female field. I was a dancer. There are many more women than men in, in dance. Right. So it never occurred to me that being a woman was a drawback in any way. So I wasn't carrying that with me. Uh, and I like being a woman. You know, I don't want to be a guy. I, I have great male friends. And actually, in the beginning, because there were so few women, I was helped by men. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, I think men being mentors to women, you were a mentor to me, you know, incredibly. So I, I think, you know, I really believe in opening the door and grabbing the hand of the next generation. So I really felt strongly like once I got in any kind of position to mentor the next generation of women, to open the door. But I was told at that time not to because there was only room for one of us. And I thought, wow, that's a world I don't want to live in. Told by agents? Told I was by... told by other women at that time. And that has changed, thankfully, in a great way. Because now there is much more of a girls' club with helping each other. But at the time, it was like, what are you doing? I was chastised. But did you realize you were also bringing a point of view? You know, every woman's different. Every yeah. man is different. Some men have a point of view that's far more feminine than many women's point of view. I, I get that. But there is also a life experience. So take Freaks and Geeks. Yes. You're doing Freaks and Geeks. You do that unbelievable episode that I remember that with Kim and... And uh, they wouldn't and, air it. They yeah. never aired that episode. And I know they didn't air that episode. No, it was too risque. And it was Mike White, too. It right? was Mike White. Yeah. Mike White, the amazing but Mike White. Did you ever, in the process of doing that, because it was so female-centric, it was about those that you're going, maybe there's another way to approach the scene, that you're not necessarily saying, look, I'm a woman, a bunch of men writing this. Uh, I have another way to approach this. That was part of it. Part of it was the male world, but it was also when you're in the writer's room or you're on the set, you're just sort of thinking, well, that my experience is that, so you sort of translate your I think experience. you bring that all the time. With you know my perception, I am a woman. You know, I definitely, and I've done a lot of action and a lot of stuff in war, but, you know. A lot of like, action. A, a like lot of action, which is very choreographic. So, you know, designing action and, and dance, they're so connected. You know, so it never was, like how that became an issue that men were better at it than women. Somehow action was in the wheelhouse of men. That never made any sense to me, you know. But I care about action that moves the story forward. I don't just care. I don't want to just blow shit up to blow shit up. Right. I mean, that's yeah. the choreographer. Yeah. That's the idea that what is the scene about? Yes. What uh, story? It's an action scene, but why is it driving our story? Exactly. Yeah. So I think I was aware of bringing, a, 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 you know, my perspective is going to be a female perspective. I want to see the gaze of who these women are in this scene and how they're responding to the guys. But. And were you aware of it early in your career? I certainly know that's true now. And I certainly, yeah. you think of Homeland, and you think of Claire, you think of the sort of anti-heroin, you know, had not been done. No. That you're there to 
you know, and what she talks, how she talks about you and the safety that she felt to play that character. That was uniquely two women that were creating that world together. But early in your career, when you're there directing Busy, is that it was Busy? Busy Phillips, yeah. yeah. You know, are you thinking at that point, I have a different point of view than possibly Judd Apatow. Right. I love Judd. I love Judd. No, I was not thinking. I have to say, right. I just wanted to tell the story in the best possible way and be sure that the point of view was clear in terms of was it Izzy Phillips' point of view? Was right. it Linda Cardellini? And yet, yeah. your first film that you chose to do a film is so female-centric. It was what hadn't been done. There was Stand By Me, and there's hundreds of young boys coming of age. Yeah. And this thing about the 12-year-old girls coming of age, and unbelievably cast. I mean, they all, everybody. Yeah. Uh, I, they, so my first film was, uh, I, I had girls grew up without any images of female friendship, of what the power of the friends you meet when you're like 12 years old, that, you know, it, it, there's a sense of, of like you've never felt as much as you you know no human has ever loved as much as you have or or cried as deeply or felt so sad and then you find out everyone feels that way but at that <laughs> moment of your life those friendships mean everything and then the summer where everything changes and you will never be the same again and that exploration of female friendship i had never seen anywhere and so, you know, all of us behind the film, the Marlene King, who's the writer, film was called Now and Then, uh, really felt committed. And there haven't been a lot of them made since then, which is so weird, about the power of female friendships. You know, and that's what interested me. Even though I have been doing all this like big heavy duty action, I really wanted, and I've done, I've always tried to mix it up. Like I directed the pilot of the Gilmore Girls, which is a mother-daughter, you know, so uh, amazing writing. Um, Amy Sherman Palladino. And I- uh, And was that your first pilot? That was my first pilot. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> good, once no again, back. a good way to start. I know, you know? no back end. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's just move, because I, yeah. I want to take questions, too. I know that people ask questions. Um, there's two other things I just want to jump to. I want to get to Homeland. And between where we just talked and Homeland, there was like 250 shows, which there are many. You did shows. and. It really did. All my friends from Justified. Yeah, it went from oh, Justified to Walking Dead to Mad Men to uh, just a, ah, she's reapplying, my friends. <laughs> so anyone who has worked with Leslie understands the reapplication moment. It's very, uh, very important. It's, um, some people smoke, some people drink, I and some people apply lipstick. Without uh, looking. The first time I, I, we worked together, I was like, what's she doing? Yeah. yeah. Time. So, and her lips are always with lipstick. It's never like, oh, I get it. It's like last looks, which I hate. Yes, I'm, I hate. I've eliminated them now looks. in yeah. my, all my shows. That yeah. you don't have last looks. That people that last looks is in filmmaking. You know, you're ready to shoot, and they go last looks, and then somebody comes to like to Leslie and would just do this yeah. for about five minutes, yeah. and nothing would fucking change. But <laughs> nothing. But, but the then, actor would feel 
better. You know, really good. But you've just come out of two hours of hair and makeup. Right. And you're like, what could you be looking at? That's right. <laughs> and that's what her reapplication is. Her makeup was fine, but yeah. it happened. Anyway, uh, so you did all of these incredible things. You, much like you traveled in your life, much like you've created families, you have. But I was blackballed too. So it wasn't. Well, tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> when? I did a pilot. I should, should I say the name of the network out loud? Oh, yeah. Okay. I did a pilot for ABC, and um, they insisted on casting someone who I absolutely knew was not right for the part. But they basically said, well, we're, unless you cast that person, we're not going to pick up the pilot. And I cast that person. Yeah, maybe this was before the, I think this was before Gilmore. And it was a disaster. It was a disaster. And of course they didn't pick it up because the main character was cast incorrectly. But I, as the director, you take the heat for that. So they totally blackballed me for years. I had to go out and do that. So you were on that list, because I didn't know there was that list. Somebody, I was on a CBS list for a while, and I went, wait, the writer threw me under the bus. It was yes. the writer's problem. <laughs> I, it wasn't my problem. Like, uh, yeah. So yes, so I had to, you know, it's constant up and down. It's never a straight line and it's never like that. Okay, I had a lucky beginning, but then, you know, it, it, it's a challenging world. Yeah, and, and you're right, you, you are the one, I mean, there's enough tire tracks on both of our bodies that you're under the bus. You actually wanna put yourself, if you're really creating a family and doing what you have now evolved to do, you have to be able to take the Yes. Uh, you can take the credit, you can take the heat, but you know, um, so creating a family. Yes. Very Let's important. just go to Homeland because, yeah. you know, having talked to a lot of people who worked on the show, uh, our relationship when I realized, and you'd already done it before, you'd been an executive, but you really did, and I know it wasn't from the beginning, it was like the second or third season. Second. You, yeah. Second season. But you created a different environment for that show and a different relationship. I know that those, and I think Michael was amazing and uh, brilliant. But the relationship that Alex had with you, the fact that you guys were out of town, that you created. The, so just talk about that experience <sighs> and what, how different that is from the experience of just being an episodic. Yes, uh, that's a really that's a great question because when you're going from show to show, which is also kind of an amazing thing. And, and actually, I used what Harris talks about when you're going from show to show, because it's a great way of describing it, that you're going into set, this is from Paris Barkley, the wonderful Paris Barkley, that you're going into someone else's kitchen, and you have to make a gourmet meal, but you're only given the specific amount of ingredients. You can't go get another set of ingredients. You got these ingredients, but you have to make the best meal out of that, and there's no excuse. You know, I really wanted the, the, uh, the arugula, you know, would have been so much better with the arugula. No, 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 this is what you got, and you need to find what, how you can be the most creative within, you know. Um, but coming from Tommy, I, you know, the role of the producing director, I feel like I'm there, I want to be the producer that every director wants to have. I want to give them all the information they need to do the best hour of, let's say with Homeland, it was 12 hours. So they're doing one chapter of that hour. I want them to have everything they need to make it as great as possible. But on the set, it's their set. I'm not gonna sit over someone, a great director's shoulder and you know, say, move the camera three feet to the left. No, no, no. You know, I wanna be sure they know 
you know, what, what the priorities are in the show, what's been established, but then they're free to go from there. So for me, what's important, number one is a no asshole policy. Uh, you know, you treat everyone with respect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that, um, you know, we're in a team sport. And our team is our cast, our crew. You know, I had an amazing relationship with Alex Ganza, who was the creator of Homeland. And um, he was dad and I was mom. You know, and we were there to, you know, to be sure the show was, you know, everything we wanted it to be. And Claire and Mandy, Claire very much. Um, Claire Danes is an extraordinary, if anyone has a chance to work with her, run toward it. She is an extraordinary human, you know. And, you know, she was a child actor from, uh, you know, 13 years old. And then she stopped and goes to Yale. You know, she is an extraordinary person and definitely made me more fearless. Uh, she would go anywhere. She would dig deep inside to find the truth. And we really tried to present a complicated, layered female character who didn't always do the right thing, right. you know. And, and then, of course, there was the politics of all of this, which we spent a week, a year with the intelligence community, meeting with the heads of the CIA, NSA, DNI, journalists. We always tried to look at both sides of an issue. There was never, it was never about who was right or who was wrong. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Uh, and that was exciting. So the challenge, every year we went to a new country, we reset the show every year. We would ask the intelligence community, what keeps you up at night? What are your deepest fears? And Alex would then go into the writing room with the writers and come up with the season based on what was heard in those meetings. And then you would take the family on a family trip to Berlin. Then I would take the family, family to, yeah. the, the 15 members of the traveling circus, we would go to Cape Town and we'd hire a whole crew in Cape Town. And, and yes, we were shooting Pakistan in Cape Town. Don't ask. You know, it was the rainy season in India. Um, so, you know, it was like starting over. Like what you get used to, you start a show and it takes like, I don't know, a few episodes to get going, to figure it out. What's the new season? We reset it every year. It never got easier because every year we would go to a new place. So it always, and I think actually one of the reasons I stayed with it, besides I loved my whole team so much, was the stories always changed. And it was always challenging. Well, it was extraordinary work lesson. And the idea that you had, you were literally doing a pilot every year. You were yes. reinventing it but with an incredible group of people. It's like the ideal when we all think of, oh, what a job and on such an important show. Um, but it, was a it gift. needed, you know, those next years, especially after Brody after died. After Brody died, yeah, after it I needed it, in it, Morocco. It needed, but it needed a reinvention. And yes. you were sort it of there for that reinvention. And yeah, that was exciting and terrifying. Too. So we only have like 10 or minutes yeah. left. Uh, but I want to, but I, I do want to just one last thing, which is your dad was a labor organizer who maybe didn't take as many chances in his life as he should have. Well, you have. You are president of the Directors Guild of America. Um, yeah. No deflection. He is the past president. I I'm was the past here. president. Yes. I was the president before you. I uh, keep calling him up. 
I'm going to stop calling, I promise. Uh, but I just want to talk for a second about that idea. That, that, and I knew that. I knew when I went to you to say. And I of, said no. Yes. Categorically no. And I will Freddie not Thomas do it. Thomas and I just, you know, yeah. we worked hard. We worked her until, and we lied to her about what the job was, <laughs> until she finally said yes. And the Guild is really lucky, really, really lucky that, we, that you said yes. But you're responsible now. You're not just Leslie's voice, which is what I had to learn. You're a voice of... 19,000. Yeah, 19,000 people. And I can tell you, having been the president during a moment where all 19,000 were unemployed yeah. uh, during this pandemic, but the, that responsibility, and now you've been doing it you know, long enough. I know you're still in your first year, yeah. but uh, do you feel that? And is that also that sense of service and somewhat a sense of your dad? You know, that you're now part of this, you know, yes. labor movement that actually is a very successful one. I mean, we, the one thing that people don't understand about Hollywood is it's a labor town. It has really good labor union, and we have the best. Yes. Um, anyway. It, feel, it felt like a huge, I feel a huge responsibility. And, uh, you know, my dad, I feel like that was the gift from him of being of service. And, and actually, when I got the call years ago from uh, Michael Apted and Taylor Hackford that, you know, it was time. It was time to give back. I took that really serious. And I think it's really important to be of service. And there's a lot we have to do to protect our creative rights, our economic rights, all, all of it. And That's I, the part I didn't lie about, which is you'll yeah. get more out of it than you'll give. I mean, you'll, yeah. it, it's that sense of... How fortunate we have both been, how fortunate Michael, there's a lot of us who are so fortunate uh, to be able to give back and to also be able to be an instrument in changing the industry so that it doesn't look like me, uh, just like me, but it looks and like not everybody. Just like me too. Yeah, absolutely. That, we, we had a TV director's dinner a couple of nights ago that he was supposed to be at, but he was here in Austin. I had to come to Austin to interview the president. I know. Um, but it was, you know, the first time I went to that dinner, there were like 300 guys and 10 women, and they passed out cigars at the end of the evening, which I smoked and still feel nauseous from it. <laughs> but uh, there were like 200, because of COVID, people were still a little, you know, there were maybe 200 people there, and it was so beautifully diverse. And I looked around and like, wow, this has changed. I have to ask you something. Did you do the toast again? all the... No, that's at the feature directors. What's well, at both? But, oh, but, shoot! But wait, I, did I didn't do it wrong. anymore. I didn't do it anymore. I, I stopped oh, doing it, and, I, I, and they would go, "Oh, you forgot?" And I went, "Ah, uh, I no. forgot," because it was like nine white guys that were all toasting, and I thought, "Yes, we should remember our ancestors." Yes. I don't have to say their names over and over. But anyway, uh, let's just take a few questions. Uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, yes. Share some extraordinary advice that you've gotten from some extraordinary mentors. I'm curious if there's any advice that you wish you had gotten that you didn't, or any particular advice that uh, you're particularly happy to uh, extend. Oh. Wow. Um, that's a great question. I would say, no matter what anyone tells you, do not give up. Like, keep doing what you want to do, not what they want you to do. You know, and in that tenacity, remember how much you love being a storyteller. Don't forget that, because if you lose the joy and the love of stories, then you have nothing left when you get the chance. So, and it can make you, it can make you hard, and 
that's not where great creative work. Trust your, trust your voice. Any other questions? My question is, on each project you go into, are you still learning? And is there something new that you're learning? And if so, can you share with us a recent epiphany or aha moment or something that you've, you've learned recently? That is a great question. Um, I just did a project here in Austin, and it was, a, it was an amazing project, an amazing experience, but it was, it has, uh, it's called Love and Death, it's for HBO Max, uh, David E. Kelly, who wrote Big Little Lies and among many other things, wrote all seven episodes. I directed five of the seven. If I tell you I'm doing that again, you talk me out of that. <laughs> uh, and, um, and the tone of the show, it's, it's an incredible story. It's an American tragedy. It's something that takes place in Texas from a Texas Monthly article and a nonfiction book. But the tone we were playing with changes very much from the first three episodes to the middle to the end, and that was terrifying to me. Yeah. And fortunately, it seems like it worked, but I felt like I was on the razor's edge the whole time. And uh, amazing cast, uh, so honored to be working with that group of, of actors, and a great crew, incredible crew, many from Texas. Uh, so it was a wonderful experience, but terrifying because it's, it was out of my, quote, normal wheelhouse. By the way, I think we are learning constantly yeah. uh, on everything and every moment. I will just tell you a technical thing I learned, which was I was shooting in Calgary uh, in December. Uh, was that outside, under the banner of heaven? Under the banner of heaven, and shooting outside, uh, and it was snow everywhere, and it was supposed to be Utah in July. And so <laughs> I didn't know you could actually rent helicopters to blow the snow all away. And it was like, wow, look what they're doing here. <laughs> there, these guys had steamers, but the people in Calgary went, yeah, of course that's what we do. It was like, okay, I grew up in Texas. I didn't know what you do with snow. Well, that was a technical I had thing a snow thing too on Homeland. We were shooting a, a, a sh an episode at a cabin in the woods on the lake. Why Alex loves, there are always houses on the lakes, but whatever, and they had, the episode before had already established it. It was a beautiful day, and then it snowed three feet. And yeah. did you have helicopters? We did not have yeah, helicopters. Because those people didn't know it. They Calgary, didn't know. you gotta go to so, so the whole crew, including me, we have shovels, and we're shoveling. Yeah. Yeah. And I redesigned the, everything in like 10 minutes. But the next time they hand you a shovel, just say, could you get a helicopter? Yeah, exactly. yeah. I didn't know. See, I just learned something right here sitting here. Anybody else? Yes. Uh, I guess I have a big mouth, so that'll be fine. No, um, I, I meant the person behind you. No, no, they didn't. No, no, no. Yes, yes, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Isn't he funny? Um, so how over the arc of your career has it changed your relationship in the writer's room, with the writer's room, and also with this explosion in television opportunity the last 10 years and so many different avenues to tell story? How is, you know, you've seen that. How's yes. that? That's a great question. Um, you know, I always look at the writer as my key collaborator. You know, if you don't have a good story and a good script, 
you can dance as fast as you can and make it look good and it's still not going to be very... I mean, I actually think it's an interesting challenge when you have a kind of shitty script and you still have to make it the best you can. And if it comes out okay, you've done a great job. <laughs> but and, and no one knows that. But I feel like I've always felt like the writer is my, you know, is my partner in telling the story. So... Um, I think that there's an equal balance between, like, there's this term showrunner. I guess Alex and I always, I was the directing showrunner, he was the writing showrunner. You know, uh, he created the show, he was there the first year I was not there, uh, and I was on another show. But, uh, you know, I guess it was probably, you know, if we got in a tussle about what we both believed, he, he had the final vote. You know, just being realistic about it. That, that was the truth of that scenario. But I feel like it's a partnership. You know, we can't do anything without one another. You know, as far as the explosion of stories, how can anyone watch so many stories? Like, I struggle to keep up with watching things. Like, it's, it's both exciting and overwhelming simultaneously. And um, I don't know if there'll be a balance found, uh, but I think, you know, when all of those mid-budget dramatic films stop being made, and you either made the tiny little movie or the gigantic movie, all of that great storytelling went to TV. So, yeah. and now TV has to look as good as any movie. You know, I always felt, like Stephen always said that to me, it is not a lesser medium. You tell a visual story, and if you only have eight days to tell it, you gotta prioritize. But it is not, it is visual storytelling. So You know, my theory also, it's why USC, it used to be USC Film School. It's the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Yes. And that's what we do. We all do, and because television has grown up so much, that we all work in the cinematic arts. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not a different toolbox. And, so but it, 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 there was, it was seen for a while as different, and I feel like it doesn't matter the delivery system. You know, you're still telling. And it did matter. When, it sorry. did. It, it totally absolutely. did. Absolutely. They would not, you know, your toolbox. My theory was you didn't ask a writer not to use verbs. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, why are you asking me not to use the crane or not yeah. to try to shoot the show this way? But I think West Wing was a game changer in that way. I think Twin Peaks was a game changer, yeah, I too. Mean, I think Hill yeah. Hill Street, I mean, yes. Game yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. We have time for one more question, if there is one. Uh, real quick, you talked a lot about the importance of prep and your very thorough prep process. Outside of the storyboarding, can you maybe walk us through kind of what that looks like as you approach your first day? Oh, wow. I'm going to put my mic down because <laughs> I don't do it as well as you. <laughs> well, I ask a lot of questions, apparently. <laughs> uh, I spend a lot of time reading the script. I want to be sure I really understand what the text is, what the subtext is, what do the characters want in each scene. So it always comes from that place. Like I need to, like on a granular level, understand what's going on in the scene, you know, and what the characters want. Because maybe they're going to behave very unexpectedly or you know, it, 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 I, I need to go into that place before I ever planning, before I'm planning how I'm going to shoot it. Because if I don't understand the story, it doesn't matter where you put the camera. You know? So that is the first thing. And I spend quite a bit of time. And then I go to, if it's on location, because like Homeland was a location show. 
we shot, everyone thinks we had a lot of money. We did not have a lot of money. We just had to be very clever about what we did. But let's say our, finally in our final season, we had 11 days to shoot. Now this is a full hour. We had 11 days, nine would be on location. But I, on the weekends, would go to the locations. I would, because if I don't like a location, I cannot see one thing. I need to, I have to like go, oh, this is the place, this has to be set here. And then I can figure out what, what needs to happen. But the first step is story. And then the next step is I walk in the actor's shoes. I walk in the character's shoes. And then I start to plan what it's gonna be, but I'm always open to what happens on the set. I will get a story on action. Yeah, on action, I don't do storyboards for two people in a room talking, or even maybe eight people in a room talking. But if it's an action sequence where we need to communicate, I mean, a lot of time I was shooting in countries where we'd have five different languages on the set. So doing storyboards where everyone has the same pictures they're looking at, they know exactly you know, what we're gonna be doing. And it's a safety thing, because safety is everything. So, uh, you know, when you're doing big explosions or cars or firearms or whatever, you wanna be sure that you are totally being safe. So it helps communicate and have everyone know what we're doing. And it makes me think, like we did storyboards, so I, someone, ah, I did not even recognize him, he was on our, our in our costume department working with Audrey Fisher, I saw him only in a mask the whole time. I had no idea. Oh, that's the bottom of your face. How amazing. But um, we, we had a horrible, one of the most horrible scenes I've ever shot, and that was all storyboarded. Like anything that requires uh, special effects, makeup, and all of that. It's also an element of safety. It is totally an element of safety. All right, well, uh, that's all the time we have. We could keep going. Um, uh, thank you all for coming. Thank ATX. Thank yes, Texas thank Monthly. So Does Texas Monthly yeah. have? Thank Texas Monthly, which I've been reading and stealing articles from. But mostly, yeah. mostly, I want to thank my dear friend Leslie Gladder. Where I speak for everybody here. We're happy you chose the right coffee shop. Uh, <laughs> it has changed all of our lives because of the stories you've been able to tell. So. Tommy, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to the, uh, thank you. Oh my God. Yeah. You have been listening to the TV Campfire podcast hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.